0: Well, let me begin by asking you to think about two questions. The first is this. What's the best thing that's happened to you in the past year? What's the best thing that's happened to you in the past 12 months? Okay, I won't ask you to tell it out loud, but just think about that. The second uh, question is very similar, it's related. What's the best thing you've done? in the past 12 months what's the best thing you've done in the past 12 months actually what you think reveals a lot about your priorities and the things that you are actually living by, what you think is the best thing that's happened to you, what you think is the best thing you've done actually reveals where we're really at doesn't it, what our hearts are Not what camouflage and mask we might put on or correct evangelical theology. Now, I love the letters of uh, John. Uh, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. You might say that the first two letters, they're more like postcards than letters, aren't they? The first two are more to do with the sort of basic priorities of the Christian life. Uh, But here in one or rather three John we have having sorry the first two are about the truths of the Christian life this one is about the priorities of the Christian life and there are three two priorities that every Christian needs to grasp and take hold of if we are to do what the Apostle Paul calls us to do to live a life worthy of the Lord now you notice in verse uh, 1 at the very beginning John calls himself the elder the elder, because a whole group of churches looked to him as the last living apostle to give leadership to the first century church. But it's a very personal postcard, isn't it? He writes to my dear friend, Gaius. My dear friend, Gaius. If you read on in the letter, I don't know if you noticed it, it's actually about um, three, or we could say Four people, this little postcard. There's the Apostle John, there's Gaius, and then there's, in verse 9, somebody called Diotrephes, who doesn't seem to be a very pleasant character, or not acting in a very pleasant way. And then there's Demetrius in verse 12. We won't have time to look at it this morning, because actually in this short letter, John looks at these three men, Gaius, Diotrephes, and Demetrius, And holds them up to us as either an example to follow or an example to shun and avoid. What I want us to do this morning is simply think about uh, this man, Gaius. This man, Gaius. And the two priorities that seem to govern his life and are actually directly related to those two questions that I gave you as we began this morning. Because we see what mattered most to the Apostle John and was reflected in the life of Gaius... What he thought was the best thing that he could engage in are shown to us in this very small New Testament postcard. Now I normally have a PowerPoint so that you could follow, but actually this is so simple that I didn't think being in Oxford you actually needed a PowerPoint. Because it's about walking and it's about working. You remember those two? Yeah, okay. Walking and working. Verses one to four, it's the first point. He talks about Gaius walking in the truth. Let's read it again. Verses one to four. The elder to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health, that all may go with well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. It gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell me about your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in the truth. You see the first priority to the Christian life is, is that picture that, the, that John and the New Testament often use of walking. It's about where you're travelling. It's about your direction in life. It gives me no greater joy than that you're walking, says John to Gaius, in the truth. It's John's way, if you like, of saying that he's Living every day with Jesus as his Lord. I have no greater joy, he says there, doesn't he, in verse 4. No greater joy. I wonder what excites you. What excites you? Well, here's the Apostle John. Think of his life. Here's the Apostle whom the Lord loved. Remember the Lord Jesus had his band of brothers. He had the twelve. Within that he had three. And then he had one, John. John was eyewitness, a bosom pal of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now here he is, decades on, the last living apostle. What is it that fills him with the greatest joy in his life? It is that this man Gaius and people like him are walking, are going on in Christ in the truth. He's not a super spiritual kind of pastor, is he? Did you notice there how he he talks about, verse 2, I wish you good health, I'm praying for your good health, and that you'll have good circumstances. He's not detached from the, the realities and the needs and necessities of life. But notice, even at the end of that verse, he says, I pray that your soul is getting along well. Because there's nothing more important Nothing more important, nothing that gives more joy than that this man is walking with Christ. So, here's the first acid test. When I asked you, just at the beginning, what's the best thing that's happened to you in the last 12 months? What did you answer? Now, be honest, what did you answer? I saw some nudges going on, some people had instant reactions, smiles upon their face... Well, there are many things, aren't they? John here rejoices and he prays for the good circumstances in Gaius' life. And that's true of us. You know, God is our abundant heavenly father. Your health may have improved in some way in the past year. That's a real blessing. You may have passed some exams. You may have got promotion in your job. That's wonderful. You may have moved house got engaged, had your first child or your first grandchild. That's marvellous, isn't it? may have had a super holiday. That might have come to your memory. But what's the best thing? The best thing is this. This is the Bible's answer. What's the best thing that's happened? Verse 4. There it is, please have a look at it. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. In other words, dear Christian friend, if you look back upon this year, if you've walked through the past 12 months with Jesus as your Lord, that's the best thing that has happened to you. And if John were writing a postcard to you and about you, that's what he would be concerned with. Because he knows that's the best thing in life that's to be had. That you're walking through life with the God who created this fantastic cosmos, who gave you life, who knit you together in your mother's womb, as the psalm puts it, who in his mercy dictated that you should be born in a certain place, dictated the days of your life, brought a Christian into your life at some point, who taught you the gospel, who lived out the gospel before you, sent his Holy Spirit to bring to life within you a relationship with God, when at long last you saw your desperate need of forgiveness and reconciliation with God, and the forgiveness that's there in Christ. Now that may have been in the last year, that might have been 40 odd years ago. But it's not simply that glorious though that is. It is, that's the beginning of a journey. And the best thing in life is walking through life, through this journey, with this Lord Jesus Christ. Your Lord, your King, your Saviour. The one who loves you with a passion. You see, John knew the love of Christ. It had changed him radically. He's known as the Apostle of Love, isn't he? He knew the love of Christ. I don't often have many profound thoughts, but I had one about two months ago. I mentioned earlier, we'd had our first uh, grandchild, we have absolutely nothing to do with that really, but our first grandchild, Oliver, was born. And naturally, we've got a picture of him, it's on the cupboard door in the kitchen, so we can see him every time we're in the kitchen. And I suddenly realised, I said to Val, that little boy no more understands the loving family, and the love to which he's been born into, then you and I understand the immensity of God's love. That's what it's like, isn't it? Here's a little ten-month-old baby. Does he understand how much his parents love him? Does he understand how much his grandparents love him? Does he have any comprehension of what his uncles and aunts would do to care for him? Of course he doesn't. He's just a little baby. It's exactly the same with us, Christian. Do we understand the immensity of God's love for us? How can we? How can we? If God gave us a thousand lives, would we ever begin to understand the love that drew salvation's plan, as the old chorus put it? Would we ever be able to comprehend how that great almighty God in his sovereignty, should send his beloved son to be our saviour, to go through that awful death upon the cross of Calvary, in order that you and I, from whatever our background, might be brought into relationship with him, could we ever begin to get even the slightest glimpse of what this great God has got planned for those who love him. I has not seen nor ear heard. The things the Lord has prepared for those who love him. Now I can see on some of your faces. You're totally disinterested. And I can see on some of your other faces. That really resonates. Because. You see if the spirit of God is at work in us. Then something of the immensity. And the ocean of the love of God. At least drops in a few raindrops upon our spirit, upon our soul, doesn't it? That I'm loved with an everlasting love. Here's love vast as the ocean. Loving kindness as the flood. John knew that love firsthand, But it's a love that God has for his children. How much does God love you, Christian? Calvary is the measure of that love. Can you comprehend Calvary? Of course you can't. We will spend eternity praising God, thanking him for it, imbibing more of his love. I have no greater joy, says the Apostle, than that you are walking in the truth. The truth is of the love of God shown to us in the Gospel. It's amazing what we forget as Christians, isn't it? I've been a Christian 45 years, as I said to Richard in that interview. And every day I have to remind myself that I am accepted not because of what I do, how performance-related we are as Christians, aren't we? We're so legalistic. It's not about what I do, it's about what he's done. I'm accepted in the beloved. I have to remind myself, especially living in a country of plenty, that every bit of good health that I enjoy, every aspect of the prosperity that God has showered upon us comes from his good hand and it's the giver not the gifts that are important I have to remind myself that one day this same God will redeem even me from death into heaven and my, my friend it may be That in the crushing disappointments of life that so often come our way, in the providence of God, that these things are sent us in order that he forces us to think about what is the best thing that's happened to us in our life. In order to draw us to Christ. That's how it works, isn't it? Because so often we get taken up with the gifts rather than the giver. And if we've lost something of that joy, then let's just be real with God. God's not unaware of it. He's not fooled by us anyway, is he? Let's just say to him, Lord. William Cowper, that great English poet of the 18th century, where is the blessedness I knew when first I knew the Lord? Where is that soul-refreshing view of Jesus and his work? That guy was real. And he was... A depressed man so often in his life. But he'd been touched by the spirit of God and by the love of God that he longed for it. And sometimes God brings us into those situations. You might be there right now. And the only thing you can say is, God help me. You know I love you. You know, like Peter, you have the words of eternal life. You will say to him, Lord, touch me again. Admit it to him. Don't hide it from him. Take it to the Lord. It's what David did, isn't it, in Psalm 51. It may be you think, I've just blown it in life. Trevor, you don't know what I've done. Even in this past month, the sin I've committed. Well, that's why we have that psalm, isn't it? Psalm 51 about David, murder, adultery, against you, Lord, and only you have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. But then he goes on to pray, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation walk in the truth but you know it's not simply an individual thing is it we are so individualistic in our western culture but the bible is very in that regard eastern in its culture or rather at least the eastern culture perhaps more readily reflects the biblical culture because it's all about the one and others isn't it Richard rightly said at the very beginning When the formal part of church is over, we're still church, we are the body of Christ, we are the army of God, we are the bride of Christ. All these pictures the Bible uses to thrust upon us the fact that we belong to one another. And the New Testament is replete with one another. Look out for one another, encourage one another, rebuke one another. God has given us one another. And you've got it here, haven't you? To here in verse 4. I've no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. John is concerned for Gaius. And that same concern ought to be our distinguishing mark for one another. When do we ever ask each other, how are you really getting on in your Christian life? What are the things that you're struggling with at the moment? What are the things that I can pray for? Is there anything that I can do to to encourage you, brother, sister, in Christ? It's a great thing about small groups and home groups, isn't it? That there's a forum for doing that. But we're so good at wearing masks as Christians. And God has given us one another. And the passion that God has for us ought to be reflected in our passion for one another. The same thing is the distinguishing mark of Christian marriages, isn't it? The best thing, husband, that you can do for your wife is to walk closely with the Lord. And the next best thing is that you should see to it that she is walking with the Lord. And vice versa, that's why God has given us. But not simply for those that are married, For those that are single. We need one another. I find it's most reflected in what we want for our children. See, what do we want for our children? So often we're sucked into the world's agenda. We want the best education going. We want them to get the best job and so on. What's the best thing that could happen to them? That's the question. The best thing is that they should come to know the Lord Jesus Christ for themselves. That's the best thing. It doesn't matter what job they do. It doesn't matter what kind of education ultimately they receive. They can be the best educated sinner in Britain. What good is that? see, it's reflected in our priorities. It really does come down to those kind of lifestyle choices. What goes on in Sunday school is much more important than what goes on in day school. That holiday camp that they might go on, that Christian camp they might go on, is far more important than you should be able to afford to take them to centre parks. It's those priorities. Mostly, the atmosphere that you create in your home, parent, for your child, and the priorities of loving Christ that you reflect are the things that are going to stay with them, or not. Walking in the truth—it's actually all embracing to life when you think about it. We've already running out of time, so I better quickly walk, move on to the second point. What's the second point about? Working. Sorry. Working. Are you sure. Very yes. okay, good. Working. Working. Verses five to eight. Please look at it with me, dear friend. You are faithful in what you're doing for the brothers, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought therefore to show hospitality to such men, so that we may work together for the truth. Now, the brothers that uh, are being talked about here in verse 5, uh, our fellow Christians, there'd been missionaries actually sent out from John, who'd come to Gaius' hometown, and uh, they'd stayed with Gaius, and he'd shown them hospitality, he'd supported them, and now they were going to come back again to Gaius' area, and there the problem lied, because there was a man in the church called Diotrephes, who was on a bit of a power freak, and uh, he was antagonistic towards that, but we can't go too much there today. But that's something of what's happening. John has commended Gaius for looking after these missionaries, as we've called them. And it's an example, really, of the second priority of the Christian life that we're called to imitate. As John puts it, working for the truth. Walking for the truth is our personal responsibility before God, for our Christian life, and that of our brothers and sisters. That's why he's given us church. But working for the church, working for the gospel, is the second Priority, working that people might hear about this glorious Lord Jesus Christ. It's a responsibility that is the responsibility of every Christian. Not some believers, all believers. That's what it says in verse 8, isn't it? We, that is, all Christians, ought to work together for the truth. Now we've all got different abilities, we've all got different circumstances, and we each contribute in different ways. We're not all meant to be public speakers. We're not all meant to be treasurers of the church. We're not all meant to be evangelists in that sense. But we are all called in our everyday lives to be able to, to live out the gospel and tell out the gospel in natural ways when the opportunity arises. This is the glory of the church, isn't it? We're all so individual. None of us has the same fingerprint. We're from different backgrounds, different educational backgrounds. We have different varying amounts of wealth. We're from different nationalities. It's the marvellous thing about the church. I love it, don't you? I remember being in the Philippines once with a friend of mine from church. We were visiting two of our folk who were out there as missionaries with OMF. Now if you can picture this scene, it's midday... So it's only us really out, mad dogs and Englishmen, you know, out in the midday sun. Midday in this little village called Nauhan in Mindoro Island on the Philippines. And we're walking down the street and in the distance, about 150 yards away, we see these two guys coming towards us. You know, it is hot, at least, although we're out, at least we're dressed accordingly just with shorts and t-shirts. But these guys, they're suited and booted. Black suit, black shoes, white tie, black, sorry, white shirt, black tie, crew cut. They're 150 yards away, we know immediately who they are. So would you, wouldn't you? Who are they? Mormons. They're two Mormons, sent, bless them, by their home church back there in America. Two, out to evangelise the world. There they are, midday, now Han, in the Philippines, 100 degrees of temperature probably, and there they are. They're like cardboard cutouts. They're like clones. That is so sad, isn't it? You see, that's what man does. That's what man's religion does. It makes us look the same and act the same. It wants to squeeze us into a mould. What does God do? He calls us into his family, and he delights in variety. It's like a kaleidoscope, isn't isn't that the brilliant thing about church? He doesn't press us into a mould, and he warns us not to try and press one another into a mould. Because he's made us as individuals, as he's delighted too. Looking the way we are, having the interests that we do, having the personality that we have with the character that we have, it's all his design, it's a genius at work, and he puts us together in a family, to work and to put on display what the gospel does you see, you wouldn't normally be sat in this room with the particular people that are in this room, would you? with some of them, you've got very little in common so why are you here? if you're a Christian, why you're here is that God's Holy Spirit has so worked into your life that not only has he caused you to be aware of his love for you but you now find it your heartbeat to reflect his love for you in love for one another because that's the mark of the Christian. And it's tough. Because we want to squeeze people into our mould we want to make them a bit like us. And God says, don't go there. What you're to do, in your diversity, God gives us a unity in Christ. The unity of the Spirit. Maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, says Paul in Ephesians. And as you do that, you show to the world, you put on display to the world, by bringing people into such communities, the brilliant thing that God is doing through the Gospel. That's the genius of God in the church, isn't it? Not to create clones, but to create a community that are in love with him and are, with his help, seeking to love one another and through them, seeking to put on display the love of Christ to people who don't yet know him. You see, that's God's agenda, isn't it? There it is at the end of verse 8. Working together for the truth. So how do we do that? Well, just a few things to conclude with. And the first thing is, read really verse 5, but it's the most important thing, it's friendship. You see, Gaius committed himself to support these missionaries who, when they arrived, were total strangers to him. But in verse 6, became people whom he loved. And that's probably the pattern to most of us, isn't it? When you get engaged in taking the gospel to people, people can come alongside you to help you. Other Christians, they're strangers to you. But very soon a bond is formed. It's the bond of the spirit. God has given us that. Friendship. Verse 6, finance. We're to imitate God's, uh, rather John's concern, that missionaries should be properly supported. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God, for it was for the sake of Jesus that they went out. You see, God isn't embarrassed about talking about our wallets in the way that us Brits are. I'm going to America in a, in a couple of months' time, um, speaking at a conference there, and the guy who went there last year said look Trevor, you've just got to get used to it but the Americans are incredibly generous and, and when they're there when you're there, they'll want to take up a love offering for you and the pastor came to him and said Brian, I know you're going to find this excruciatingly embarrassing but it's the way we do things it's the way we do things but actually there's something lovely and wholesome and biblical about that isn't there? Not that You could profit from it. But Paul was like this, wasn't he? He wanted God's people to be generous because it reflected the Father. What's God like? He's indiscriminately generous, isn't he? He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. He supplies our need richly in Christ Jesus. He's abundant in his generosity. And he wants us to be like that. He wants us to hold all that we are given by God with an open hand. Because one day he's going to say to us, How have you used it? How have you used it? And the gospel, this is why the Bible is unashamed about talking about finance, the gospel travels, in a sense, on the railway lines of finance, doesn't it? Money is needed to to support workers, to train workers. Money is needed to buy or rent buildings money needed for all kinds of things it's got to be wisely stewarded and, and used, of course it has it's not to become an idol and there's danger in it and so on but the Bible says look support people in a manner worthy of God because it's a reflection of the value you put upon God, the value you put upon God's servants, these missionaries so friendship Finance and far-sightedness. Look at the end of verse eight, please. So that we may work together for the truth. I think it was Andrew Murray, a Christian Scottish Christian of the 19th century, who said this: something like this. It's not the exact quote, but it's something like this. Every local church has it within its power. affect the world do you believe that actually every local church should have a concern the kind of Acts 1 verse 8 concern locally nationally and internationally what a great thing here in Oxford the nations come to you it's the same in London where I come from it's a brilliant thing to invest in reaching people with the gospel who knows somebody might come to this church from Asia or Africa and South America Come into a community of God's people who are showing them something of the priorities that they live for. That the best thing that's happened to them in life is that they know Jesus, that they're walking with Him. And the best thing they can be about is spreading this gospel. They come into that community, they hear and they see the gospel. In God's grace, they're converted. They go back to their homeland, to their families, to their friends, far, far away. What's taken place? Here's a church in Oxford, in the suburbs of Oxford, and its reach has gone around the world. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that thrilling? Isn't that glorious? Isn't that typical of God? Well, that's the vision. So if John was stood here this morning, and he is through his word, he would say this, wouldn't he? Walk in the truth and work for the truth. What's the best thing that could happen to you? That you're a Christian. That you're loved by God. What's the best thing you've done this year, or you'll do any year? It is that you'll be partners together in the gospel. As you take the gospel to your homes, to your workplaces, to universities, to your studies, to your schools. And as you work together to evangelise this area and through it, out into other parts of the world it's a great vision it's how it works, it's how the gospel travels God help us, God give us a vision to walk and work for the truth if we believe it we will live it